0: And when the, when the pandemic hit and we saw that, it was like, wow, we're just putting accountability to the side for now. Let's not worry about anything except for taking care of each other and taking care of our people. That's goal number one. And we're all going through this together. Everybody's afraid. So it was kind of this sense of we're all in it together. And that was amazing for like about six weeks.
1: Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So my guest on today's episode of the Inspire podcast is Dr. Nate Regeer. And Nate is uh, the CEO and founder of Next Element Consulting. It's a global leadership consulting and training firm helping to build cultures of compassion and accountability. And if you haven't heard of compassion and accountability, well, I've, I've got good news. Nate has a brand new book, on the topic. And that's why I wanted to have him on to talk about this book, talk about what is in on the surface, perhaps a contradiction and how to think differently about it. So Nate, welcome to the Inspire podcast.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be with you and your listeners today.
1: Yeah, great, great to have you. And, you know, I was reading, you know, starting to read through the book and you have a really interesting life story that kind of brought you to writing this book. Like, can you just... Take our listeners through your, you know, your upbringing and and what led you ultimately to this point where you thought I got to write this book on compassion, uh, compassion and accountability.
0: Sure, sure. This is this has been something that's been percolating for a long time. I would call it more like the oyster that, that that comes from the sand, you know, the pearl that comes from the sand and the oyster shell. I was raised a Mennonite missionary kid in Africa. My parents. I grew up in Africa and lived in a couple of different places. One was Zaire, which is the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I also lived in Botswana in the eighties, which was right next bordering South Africa during apartheid. And uh, for those of, for those listeners that maybe don't know what Mennonites are, it's, it's a, it's a Protestant denomination that really focuses on peace and nonviolence and uh, pacifism. And so I received a lot of messages growing up about, always turn the other cheek, always be peaceful, never resort to violence. And yet in my formative years, I was around so much. And so this idea of what really is compassion and how does it work and what it's for has been something that I've, I've struggled with my entire life and been a thread uh, throughout all of my professional career.
1: And, and that's fascinating that you you were growing up in Africa, you're seeing, you're hearing one thing, you're seeing another thing, like Where was your head at as you grew up in this environment? Like, you know, were you, did you kind of reject the teachings that you were raised with? Did you, like, how did you uh, approach that cognitive dissonance?
0: For the most part, no. I I did adopt and I really worked hard at it. I remember one time in fourth grade, the the bully on the playground was bullying people and I'd had enough and I tripped him. (laughs) on the way by, and he fell on the edge of a concrete playground, broke his glasses, gashed his eye open and had to go to the ER for stitches. And that's the first time I can remember committing an act of violence against someone. And it escalated awfully fast. I and mean, it was horrible for me. Hmm. Um, so otherwise, no, really, really hard. And I was a pretty big kid. I'm six, four and a half, pretty large. Um, so in a lot of situations where maybe an interpersonal situation could have escalated into violence, I probably could have prevailed physically. So making the choice not to resort to violence when I maybe could have won was also an interesting challenge. It required me to think, what are other other ways of getting what I want or getting through the situation without violence? And so, you know, I truly was committed but also I'm a kind of a narcissist <laughs> I'm kind of self-centered kind of all about me and I'm right. also very opportunistic so I wasn't going to compromise getting my needs met or getting what I wanted just to avoid violence so maybe that was the beginning of me saying wait can I have them both
2: hmm yeah,
1: okay so let's let's fast forward from you know the trip, the trip that reinforced your worldview and then you, you're growing up. <laughs> and then you ultimately made your way into the corporate world, right? Where you were. T- um, yeah. So talk, talk a bit about that journey um, and, and some of the, the realizations that you had uh, as you took that step from, from Africa to the boardroom.
0: Yeah, I think I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I had little entrepreneurial schemes my whole life, little side hustles all the time. And my parents were like, man, he's such a little entrepreneur. I went to college to, for business. That was my major. I was gonna go make a million dollars and whatever. I was gonna be an entrepreneur. And I actually got intimidated by economics. The, the, the I, economics one, I, I took it, it was okay. Economics two, I really struggled, and I got a B. And when I went to buy my economics three textbook, it was like two inches thick and it was shrink-wrapped with this five and a quarter floppy disk <laughs> included some of you might remember. You're dating and, yourself, and Nate. You're business. dating yourself here. And right, I, right. I am
1: too, because I actually remember those.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and when I checked out at the bookstore, the, the person checking me out said, oh, you know what they're, the, the, what they're saying. is these, these floppy disks can hold as much information as like 50 books. And that was it. That was too much. I was like, forget this. I can't do this. I was used to getting straight A's and I actually literally asked for a refund on my book and I went to my advisor and changed my major. And I changed it to psychology and it was the best decision I ever made because I really latched onto psychology as a way to influence people towards their best selves rather than, you know, for personal gain. And so yeah, I was a clinical psychologist for 11 years and learned, you know, all kinds of things about the be- the The psychology and science of behavior, and why people do what they do, and but still being an entrepreneur at heart, I think I was always destined to, you know, run a company and bring those things to the corporate world.
1: So, how did that lead you to ultimately founding Next Element?
0: Um, I got to know some really cool people at my place of employment. I worked for a really large behavioral community behavioral health center that had all kinds of different types of services from inpatient addictions treatment to you know a ropes adventure course for working with corporate groups and i got involved in a lot of different things but i met three people in my journey there that we just kind of had this connection we had a similar worldview a similar Mm -hmm. philosophy about how people change and you know we just started talking about i mean how cool would it be to just put our shingle up and go try this and eventually we did we just started next element in 08 and um the name Next Element comes comes from, we used to work on this adventure ropes course. And, and if you've ever been on one of those, you know that there's all these elements. These elements that are, that are you know, contraptions, challenges, whatever, that, that they set a context to bring out people t- to facilitate learning and growth and teamwork and whatever. So we thought that's kind of cool. Um, and we'd always, after we finished an element, we'd say, are you ready to go to the next element? And it was kind of like, what's the next learning journey for you? What's the next growth? What's the next insight you want to have? Uh, and so that's kind of was the genesis of our, of our company name.
1: And so once you started, it was what, 2008 that you started the company?
0: Oh, wait, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so you write in your book, it's really fascinating to me, about the journey of compassion. Before we dive into the book and dive into to, you know, you know, everything that led to writing it, let's just get clear you know i wrote a book on, on language so give me your definition what is compassion what is accountability
0: compassion comes from the latin root meaning with suffer Calm means with passion means suffer so in a day to day setting we simplify it to say struggling with you are practicing compassion when you are struggling with other people well what does that look like what does that mean to struggle with somebody and so that's where we said we need an operational behavioral definition of compassion that is better than empathy in action or my heart goes out to you and I want to give money to your cause or I want to keep get those hungry dogs on the ASPCA commercials off the street, right? We compassion is the practice of demonstrating that humans are valuable, capable, and responsible in every interaction. There are some fundamental components here. I appreciate your, your, your care for language. Mm. It's the practice of demonstrating compassion happens through our daily behaviors that are visible to other people. And we practice, we have to get better out of every day.
1: So it's not just a mindset. It's a demonstratable practicing. Compassion is a demonstrated behavior.
0: It's not only demonstrated, it is learnable and it's teachable. And that's the good news. Yeah, so it's demonstratable. But what we are demonstrating are three fundamental truths about the human beings. We are valuable, we are capable, and we are responsible. And we can unpack those later. But each one of those must be evidenced through our practiced behaviors in every interaction, because the action is in the interaction, ultimately. So that's that's the definition the mindset is when you embrace that this is true and then the skill set is when you start practicing the behaviors that evidence those truths
1: okay i like it i like it and i like that you pointed out or that you've taken the position that's it's, it's teachable Let, let's talk accountability what's your definition there because that's a word and i just have to say um I, I mentioned it when we started a pod that it's a double podcast recording day i had a conversation with Michael Bungay-Steiner today. And we were talking about accountability. I said, you know, I can't wait to ask Nate this question. I said, you know, I, whenever I hear this term, hold someone accountable. It just seems, I hate that because to me, it's always a euphemism for I'm going to punish them. So I'm so yeah, interested in hearing, yeah. like, what is your definition of accountability? Because I know it'll be better.
0: <laughs> well, accountability, It's we can't talk about it without also talking about responsibility. Okay. Those are often confused. Accountability means Accounting for something. You have to answer to somebody for some outcome. So if I'm the CFO, I am accountable to my board of directors, to my executive team for the financial performance of the organization. Mm -hmm. Now, do I make daily spending decisions? No, I am not responsible for the thousands or hundreds of people that are making decisions every single day in the moment that roll up into our financials but I am still accountable for it. Hmm. So accounting for something means you have to answer and potentially you might have to answer for the outcome of other people's behaviors. But responsibility is only the things that you have direct control over, which is your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors. That is it. it. I like it. So so as a CFO, I'm accountable to, to, to my organization for the financial performance, but I'm only responsible for my own behaviors that are in line with my job and my scope. Our relationship with and practice of compassion has changed a lot over the years, just as mine has. Hmm. And um, I, I kind of broke it into several eras. The self-compassion era was really early. Hmm. That was where more kind of mindfulness, Eastern thought was coming in and practices about just, you know, you've got to be Mindfulness meditation was kind of really starting mm-hmm. to become kind of a personal practice, but it wasn't incorporated into business. And then business compassion is the next era where the, we started to see the benefits that, you know, when people are practicing compassion with themselves and others, it's good for business. Right. And so there was a lot of research that came out and, you know, you've heard about all these amazing companies like Google and Apple were doing all these cool things, you know, to be more human centered. Then inclusion, compassion started to come when we really started getting focused on DEI and what does it look like to truly care about our fellow human being and let's start examining how our systems and processes and power structures have have grown to undermine that. And then pandemic hit and boy, did compassion go on on an interesting roller coaster ride during compassion. And that's where I talk about what I call the pendulum of compassion.
1: Yeah, can can you uh, unpack that? On the other- can you unpack that? Cuz I think you're right, you know, the rhetoric around compassion really moved to the forefront in COVID. And you know, we saw employers caring for their people, not just in actions, but in in language, right? We're here for you, we're there to support you. It's almost like this inversion of the relationship, power relationship from Hey, we're going to, you know, you owe us to what can we do for you? And we saw it with governments, you know, with all the support that government stepped up to provide. So is, the, is that kind of what you saw when it, when it came to uh, pandemic compassion?
0: That's what I saw initially. Mm, and when, okay. the, when the pandemic hit and we saw that. It was like, wow, we're just putting accountability to the side for now. Mm-hmm. Let's not worry about anything except for taking care of each other and taking care of our people. That's goal number one. And we're all going through this together. Everybody's afraid. So it was kind of this sense of we're all in it together. And that was amazing for like about six weeks. <laughs> and and then as soon and then, as And then Madonna then started, started to, recording, then Madonna said we're all oh in this together God. while she recorded a
1: video from her luxury bathtub and it started to to collapse. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> like really. No, what happened publicly is we the rhetoric started coming about um who's to blame for for the virus mm-hmm. or the vaxxers versus anti-vaxxers, mask wearers versus non-mask wearers, and all of a sudden it was like wait, what happened to compassion? Because now we're just at each other's throats, cancer forming, so divisive. Um, and, you know, there's a lot, there was other things going on socio politically at the time that probably contributed to this. But man, and then the pendulum swang, swung all the way over to cancel culture, which had been, you know, growing. But man, how quickly you can just decide somebody, you don't like their views on something and you just want to destroy them and you will right. go after them. And it can even end up in violence. You know, as we saw, you don't like someone's views. You don't like how something turned out. Just go take them down. And so this this pendulum was like going crazy. It's like, what is going on with compassion? It's getting swung around like a rag doll, you know? And so then what we realized is this idea of compassion and accountability is like we have to find, we have to reconcile this because We have to usher in the next generation a more evolved understanding of compassion Mm -hmm. that includes accountability, not one that somehow works against it or puts it to the side or pits it as the opposition.
1: Yeah, and I think you know one one of the really interesting things you talk about is compassion on its own. Compassion without accountability is as problematic as accountability without compassion. So maybe maybe you could just elaborate on those two. And I know you have some stories in the book, but um, what is the problem with accountability without compassion? What is the problem with compassion without accountability?
0: Yeah, I'll summarize it really quickly and then give you some examples. So compassion without accountability gets you nowhere. And if you don't believe me, go work with victims of domestic violence. I did this for eleven years and I have yet to see a victim of domestic violence who love their abuser into changing.
2: Well, yeah.
0: You can't nicey nice your way to high performing teams and organizations and ultimately have the integrity and the mm. the commitment that you need to perform. But the opposite is also true. Accountability without compassion will get you alienated. We, the Gen Zers and the, and the millennials are telling us that. You try to bring a hammer down on them, they're like, see ya, I'll go work somewhere else. Right. And my boss treats me like a human being, right? That old school command and control culture that thinks that a paycheck is enough, you should be lucky to have a job, it don't fly anymore. And it's one of the reasons why a lot of organizations are struggling with, with to, get, to retain good people. Is you can't treat people like this anymore and get away with it. And just a quick example, people that practice compassion without accountability, if that's where they go when the going gets tough, they just believe that somehow if you just love your people enough, they're going to do what you want. And so they don't have the hard conversations. They don't, they will compromise boundaries in order to keep the peace. And they're, they're, they will say things like, you know, don't raise your voice, or we just need to be nice, or, you know, give them a second chance, or, you know, what if you put yourself in their shoes? And so they they're they're running around like a chicken with their head cut off, putting out fires and picking up everybody's messes because they don't want to talk about behavior. Right. Um, But uh, but the opposite is is also the same a problem because if you're running around barking orders, threatening people, and jumping to these quick kind of intimidating actions to be able to get what you want, people might comply in the short term, but they're not going to respect. There's going to be no trust. Morale goes down. And, you know, they're the kind of people that say things like, well, we just this young generation doesn't know how to respect authority or, <laughs> you know, you can't show weakness. And they're probably the parents that whenever their kid asks a question, they're like, well, do it because I said so or else. Hmm. Um, so this kind of like I'm the boss, do it my way kind of mentality doesn't work because as you as we see, the, the newer generation wants a lot more than that.
1: And I think now the workforce mobility is so much greater. I mean, you know, it used to be, you know, you had you had to stay because your options for leaving were so difficult. And now it's just the opposite. So I love the, I love the way you you put this contrast. And I think, you know, what you've described, this, you know, challenge of being pulled almost, you know, the pendulum between compassion, accountability is really at the heart of a lot of the challenges that leaders and people listening to this podcast are listening because they want to be better leaders, they want to be more inspirational, but they're they're really re- pulled in these two directions.
0: I think the dilemma that most leaders find themselves in in organizations is the dilemma that's actually created by believing compassion and accountability are at odds. The, the, it starts with the wrong mindset. I mean, everyone would love to have wonderfully close teams and great relationships with everybody and everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. We'd love to have them both. But when push comes to shove, everybody will pick a side. Hmm. Everyone does. And you can see it in their behavior, one or the other. When push comes to shove, people will pick a side and um, you can hear it in their mottos, like, well, you can't be someone's friend and boss at the same time or sometimes you just need to bring the hammer down. So Those, those beliefs represent that they are willing to compromise one for the other when the going gets tough. Hmm. That is the wrong question. The question is not, do you have to pick one over the other? The question is, how do you get both at the same time? In other words, each one is a means to the other, Hmm. not in opposition. So, That is the fundamental premise of the book is we've got it all wrong when we think that these two are in opposition because they're Mm. actually the same thing.
1: So it's yes and not yes. or.
0: It is yes and they are a duet. They're a complementary duo that can't exist without each other. Hmm. Compassion requires accountability and accountability has to have compassion or you're just being brutal.
1: Let's look practically. What does that mean from a mindset standpoint?
0: Well, we know mindset's important. The research continues to mount that mindset matters. It drives all kinds of things. Carol Dweck made the growth mindset popular, growth versus fixed mindset. You could actually, IQ actually increases if you believe your brain is malleable. So we know mindset matters. And so we went about figuring out what is the compassion mindset? What is the mindset that gets us in the right place to learn, to grow, to learn, to practice the behaviors? And this actually came later. We were like seven years into our workforce element before we started reflecting and saying, wait, what is it that differentiates the people that seem to fly when given opportunities to learn and grow and the ones that just stay stuck on the ground? And when we looked at our data and shared stories, what we realized is there are common themes and these common themes come down to how they view themselves and each other. And specifically, you could categorize the behaviors into whether they saw themselves or others as valuable, whether they saw themselves as others as capable, which is kind of life to growth mindset, and whether they saw themselves and others as responsible. And if any one of those three were glitching, you could see it in their ability to learn and grow.
1: Hmm. Okay. So those are the things that define mindset?
0: Yeah. So that was the mindset, and and just really quick, mindset is an attitude. It's a way you see yourself and others, and it's a choice. This is not a learned skill. Hmm. It's a decision, and anyone probably listening can remember a moment where they heard something or saw something that was so profound, they were never the same. It shifted something inside of them, and they were able to go out and do something differently immediately without ever learning a new skill, because they changed the way they looked at something.
1: What kind of mindset should you adopt if you're going to practice, practice this compassion and accountability?
0: Anyone can turn on the switches of the compassion mindset. Okay. We've identified these as three switches. Anyone can turn them on by making a choice. Then they have to go about learning and practicing the behaviors that keep that switch on. Um, an example, I might say, yes, valuable every human being is valuable yes i get it i earned up 100% then the question is okay so when some but when your spouse or your colleague shares with you a really vulnerable emotion that you can't relate to and it has to do with something that's a change initiative that you just implemented what are you going to say next if that person is truly valuable that comes that's where the behaviors come in that we can teach and practice so
1: let's say we've taken this premise, compassion, accountability, it's not either or, it's yes and. And we strive, you know, as leaders, as professionals, as people to embrace and adopt this mindset. Then you get to the reality. And what I find is that a lot of large organizations in particular, I I won't say dehumanize, but they, they almost, you know, it's almost like a technocratic approach where they'll say, hey, you know, this has to happen. That has to happen. You as a as a member, you know, often say this, you as a member of the leadership or management must execute this strategy. And that strategy is going to come with impacts on people, right? So mm-hmm. how do you, if you have this mindset, what, what would you encourage people to think about or do when they're faced with these demands or, or priorities that the organization places on them that... May cause them to feel that they're not showing or able to show compassion. Like, and, and you know, just to make yeah. it practical, yeah, like great. let's t- let's continue with this story of return to office. So, let's say you're a manager, right? You've you've spent three years with your team working completely remotely, and the team has delivered. They have provided overperformance. The company has met all its goals. You know, profit, revenue, whatever. It's all there then the order comes down. You're a big global company. You know, the CEO and management team believe that a return to premises is necessary. And while there are some reasons that you would agree with, you know, yes, some of our young people say they would like to be there. The real estate is wasting away. Overall, your team says, look, you know, I've reoriented my life under the assumption that this would happen. Um, And you're told, well, you have to enforce the policy. T- talk to me about how the mindset comes up against the reality, and maybe it's a link now to the behaviors that, that you
0: practice. So, if I'm talking to my employees, let's say I'm talking to my employees, I've received this edict, and because I'm a dutiful manager, I'm going to do my best to implement it because mm-hmm. I'm accountable to my executive team. So, I talk to my employees and I say, I'm really struggling with something here because I care about you all. And I know how hard this is. The dilemma is that we have been tasked to all return to premises by a certain date. And I know how comfortable many of you have gotten and how well you're doing in your current situation. So the challenge that we have here to solve is how to help you be as productive as possible while returning to premises that is ultimately my commitment as long as i'm in this position working for this organization so how's everybody doing
1: i'm not hearing any equivocation i'm not hearing you blame the company or or create daylight between you and the business so that's the accountability piece but i'm also hearing empathy care and understanding in how you're speaking to the people about that is that have i picked up
0: absolutely i you know Yes, and most managers would pick one over the other. They would go to the, their people and say, look, it's, it's not my call. I'm sorry the uh, organization's being jerks, but you got to do it, guys. Mm-hmm. So now they're blaming someone else and they're not taking responsibility for their behavior, which is you got to implement this. Or they could go the other way and say, I know, I know, I'll go talk to them. I know you guys want to them. I'll see what I can do. Right. And then they go take a bullet for the team and act like the team is more important than the organization. Right. So then there's the other conversation though, which is that manager has to also lead up and has to have conversations with who made the rules by saying things like this. I'm really torn in my position because on the one hand, my team has never performed better than before and they've adopted this new lifestyle and I'm also committed and loyal to implementing what you tell me to do as long as I'm in this position. Mm-hmm. What ideas do you have for how we can reconcile this? Because it's not going away. I like and it. as an organization, I want to invite you to think about, would you rather have everyone back at work or would you rather, what is actually going to provo- to produce the highest performance and just keep having those conversations like and be willing to not take a bullet and not make, make excuses but just keep having the conversation while respecting everybody's dignity.
1: I really like that, and I like that you you also just highlighted how you can have that conversation up as well. Uh, may, maybe you've you've referenced a few times, and so I'm really curious now. You know, some of these these things that you can do that you can practice day in day out. What would be the three like someone listening, or, or I'll just be selfish here because I'm getting the, I'm getting a free clinic for me here, so this is this is awesome. I'll just let's make it all about me. (laughs) What are the three things I can start doing or should be doing day to day that will have the greatest impact on my ability to practice, compassion, and accountability?
0: Well, only knowing you a little bit, but knowing what a lot of leaders struggle with, Mm -hmm. I'm going to share what kind of, what I would say are the top three things you could do right Mm -hmm. now that will make the biggest difference. The first one is, Get over yourself and start getting vulnerable. Okay. Get over your ego, get over your fears, and start opening up to people because how can someone struggle with you if they don't know what you're struggling with? Burnout is mostly caused by people carrying their pain without talking to anybody about it. And so they heap on themselves all of these pressures and reasons to be strong, be tough, get it done. And, and they think that if they were to just come clean with their people about how they're really feeling, hmm. people would think they're weak, people would think they're a pushover, but absolutely not. Because when you get real with your people, they perceive you as human. And human connection is the number one driver of compassion. So get vulnerable with your okay. people. It doesn't make you weak, it makes you human. Number two, don't stop there or else you're gonna be a sitting duck. Hmm now ask, now ask for help. If you're going to get vulnerable, then you have to take the next step and say, here's the kind of help I would, would really love from you. Maybe your help is just, hey, can I have a moment to just vent so that at least I, you know, I know I'm not alone in this fear and that's it. Or maybe you want specific help. Like, would you be willing to take on these two tasks because I just can't do it? Hmm. Um, and get over yourself again, thinking that everybody else is so overloaded that you can't ask them to do one more thing because helping another person gives us more energy. Everyone wants to be helpful. So give a person an opportunity to come to your aid, ask for help, you're not an island. And then the last thing is don't compromise on priorities. Mm. And the hard part is sometimes when we're under pressure we make everything important instead of remembering that there's just a few things that Mm. really matter. So go back to first principles, remember what really matters. And then just focus on that, and go. Don't get distracted by rabbit trails and and petty power struggles. Um, so get vulnerable, ask for like help, it. and keep the most important thing the most important thing.
1: And what I like about those three is, it's back to this mindset of like yes and. Like they all, if I'm if I'm reading this correctly. Each of them fuses compassion and accountability, like starting with the vulnerability, right? Like, so I'm thinking about myself as, as, you know, CEO of the Humphrey Group. Like, I can share about, share with the team or my leadership team, hey, here are the things that I'm wrestling with. Here's what's tough. Here's what I'm struggling with. But not in the sense of just saying, like, oh, this is, you know, I want you to feel for me. It's like, cause I, cause we're, we got to be accountable to achieving these things and then asking, mm-hmm. um, asking for help you know, same thing, right? It's, it's the compassion. It's almost self-compassion there, right? Like, hey, I need, your, I need, I need you to help me, <laughs> but also the, so sure. that we can achieve what we're after. So is that, is that a fair assessment that compassion and accountability are fused in, in all of these?
0: Well, what you saw is that with each of the three things, it turned on one of the switches. When I get vulnerable with somebody, what I'm saying is I'm valuable. My feelings matter enough to share them with you. And when I, when I ask for help, what I'm saying is we're capable, which means hmm. when we come together, we can solve this. And sometimes the help I ask for from my team is, is I say, you know, here's the story I'm telling myself about the situation is this accurate? Right. Are you seeing it this way? Or am I spiraling? Right. And so sometimes the biggest help they can give me is simply perspective.
1: Right. Say
0: um, The world's and not so ending. The you last, can breathe. Yeah. And then I, I come to say, okay, what really is this about? What do I need to keep my focus on? That's turning on my responsibility switch and saying, just because I'm struggling doesn't let me off the hook. It doesn't make me mm-hmm. less responsible. I still have to accomplish it, but I do, get, need to be crystal clear about what really is the thing that right. I Am responsible for.
1: Yeah, that's that's super helpful, Nate. and you know, I think you really outlined some things, you know, tangibly that individuals can do. Um, I want to just kind of take it bigger for our last our last topic, which is, you know, one of the things that really fascinated me when that, when we did our prep and what you put into this book is like, you're not just writing the compassion and accountability as a book for individuals. You also view it that can be as something that can be embedded into an organizational culture. By making part of systems and processes that define how you work. So, mm-hmm. take—I'm curious about that, like, because I would have thought it would be more an individual practice. So, maybe explain to me what the what the goal is, and and uh, and I'd love to know if there's an organization that embodies that.
0: I'm so glad you asked because that's one of, I think, what's missing from a lot of leadership books is either they focus on the granular interactions
2: Mm -hmm.
0: at the expense of of the culture and the organizational processes, or they're so theoretical and systemic and strategic that it sounds great in in theory, but when it comes down to what are the actual words, what are the daily interactions that no one knows. And so you can't have one without the other. so. We, we really kind of, the crescendo of the book, it gets to this section called implementation. We've identified, first of all, how do you set behavior norms for an organization? The entire organization, how are we going to be with each other that keeps our switches on? And then I've identified six areas where we work with organizations to say, let's look at this system or this process or this function through the lens of the compassion mindset and ask ourselves, is it reinforcing keeping the switches on or is it working against us? Hmm. And so when you when you examine those six collectively, they really, really can turn culture around and help us really look at the systems and processes. And so there, there there's a section for each one and then we've added an assessment where you can assess whether the compassion mindset is active and to what degree in your culture, in your team, in your organization.
1: Now, we obviously want people to buy the book, so we won't go through all six, but maybe I'll ask you to just yeah. pick one. What is one that you would really have us honing on?
0: Let's look at performance management and reviews. Okay. Something oh. that I have
1: to say, organizations hate oh. and do so, and people hate. hate, like no one likes them. And yet everyone wants more
0: feedback. Yes. So, like,
1: so take us to the, what's what's wrong yeah. here? What's going my, on?
0: <laughs> my favorite description I ever heard about, about. I asked somebody, what comes to mind when I say performance reviews? And someone raised their hand and he said, picking scabs. <laughs> <laughs> picking scabs. Yeah, that sounds about right. We're all starting to appreciate and realize that performance reviews cannot be an annual event. They have to become part of the mm-hmm. daily conversations. They have to become a regular occurrence and an integral part of our relationships. So what if we talked about behavior and performance with our switches on? And we, and we, we approached every conversation saying, how would I approach this if, if we were both valuable? How would I approach this if we were both capable? And how would I approach this if we both took 100% responsibility for our part? And so that, that changes the conversation for, for how are we talking about our behaviors? And one of the best, most important things is you've got to separate the person from the behavior. And we have to be able to talk about you are valuable, we care about you, and honey... This behavior, here's the pattern, and it can't continue because if it does, here's the risks it's causing, and here's what will happen. So that's um, the compassion so,
1: about, sorry, in practice there is yeah. you can have the compassion for the person, but the accountability is behavior-focused. Is that right?
0: Well, compa- we're also accountable for our feelings. Hmm. And and can I share okay. one quick example so yeah, please, of how please. a leader, so here's a performance conversation where a nurse manager was responsible for quality control at this whole department. And they're struggling during COVID to get and retain good nurses. So turnover is high. There's plenty of unfilled positions. And she has a nurse that is not performing. And her dilemma is if I talk to this nurse, I'm afraid she's going to leave. Hmm. Because she kind of has the upper hand here. But if I don't talk to the nurse, something bad is about to happen. And I'm going they're all going to point fingers at me because I'm ultimately accountable for the quality of our department. So what do I do? And she's like, and it's like, cause she said, I can't pick one over the other. And I said, well, you're right. You have to go talk to her and you have to tell her how you're feeling. What do you mean I tell her how I'm feeling? It's like, well, compassion means you're in this together. You're not going to solve this one or one or both of you. It's going to take both of you. So what she said to this, she went to this nurse and said, I'm really struggling with something. And I want to tell you on the one hand, I'm noticing these performance problems that are creating risk for our department. And on the other hand, I'm scared that if I bring them up, you're going to leave. And I really desperately need good people in this department. So I'm just curious, would you help me figure this out? Is there anything I don't know? Um, Help me resolve this dilemma because I care about you and I want you on our team. And I cannot compromise these in order to maintain my responsibility to the organization. And she just, got quiet. And she's like, Oh geez, what's going to happen? You know, is this, is this Gen Z nurse going to be like, see ya, it's not part of my journey, you know, today. (laughs) And the nurse was like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. There's something I've been afraid to tell you because I thought you were going to think I was X, Y, Z or whatever. And she told the nurse manager what was going on. And they worked on a plan together. And this plan helped this nurse manager work on some things, value herself more, set some boundaries at home, and I got some new skills, and she became one of their top performing nurses, didn't leave, and is super wow. loyal now to this department.
1: Wow. And I love the vulnerability, going back to what you were saying, right? You know, be start by being vulnerable. Start us switch one. and But also ask for help, part two, and three, you know, stick to those first principles. I mean, it's all three of those things in action in
0: that one powerful moment. It's so different than a typical conversation that goes, you know, I hate to have to tell you this, but you've been missing whatever and I have no choice but to put you on a performance plan. Right? Like where, not, it's not even accountable because the way I'm saying that I'm not even owning my own role, Mm -hmm. which is to own your decisions. You're the one making decision here. You're in charge of the performance of your organization or Mm -hmm. your department. So.
1: I love it. Neat. I feel like we can keep going. <laughs> yeah, There's so many, so <laughs> many more. But uh, I think the real solution is for people to buy your book. I know it's just come out. You can go to Nate's website, which we'll link to, and get the first chapter. What resources do you have available for people who want to start down this journey of practicing Compassion and Accountability?
0: Yeah, thank you. The, the compassionaccountabilitybook.com will get you where you need to go. And we have, we have that assessment I mentioned, which you can download. We have other resources. You can link to my blog where I write a lot about little nuggets from that book. Um, yeah, you can go to my podcast where I interview leaders that are putting this into practice in their organizations. Uh, so those are just some of the things that are available now. You know, and,
1: and you should connect, follow you on LinkedIn that you're prolific. You're a prolific content creator. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I'm trying. I'm trying. And you know, if you do want to bring us in, we're happy to Start working with you on diagnosing and doing an assessment of where you're at and where you can focus on keeping these three switches on to transform your culture.
1: Well, Nate, I really appreciate you coming on the pod. I, I'm taking a lot away from today. These two concepts, I, I love your mindset. You know, it's not either or it's and. And uh, I look forward to striving, uh, not always effectively, but striving to practice some compassion and accountability. So thanks so much for writing the book and for coming on the Inspire Podcast.
0: You're welcome. Appreciate being here with you.
1: Hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Nate about his new book, Compassionate Accountability. I really love the reconciling the seemingly irreconcilable and viewing the ability to hold people to account and care for them as people as something you can do at the same time. So, Pick up his book, follow him on LinkedIn. He creates some great content. And speaking of great content, very fortunate on the podcast next time to welcome Michael Boongay Sainer. And he is the author of the book you probably know, The Coaching Habit, one of the most successful selling books on coaching of all time. And he's got a new book called How to Work with Almost Anyone. He's got the disclaimer on Almost. It's practical, it's clear, and it really talks about how to have a keystone conversation that sets your relationship up for success. We spend so much time talking about the work we're going to do. We don't talk enough about how we're going to do it together. So tune in for that great conversation next time on the podcast. In the meantime, please rate and review. It always helps us get noticed.